I'm Isabelle Gontier, Chief Assessment Officer at PSI Services, and I invite you to delve deep into the world of testing with me. Every episode, I'll be on the virtual couch with experts from the testing industry, engaging in conversations about the latest developments in our field. Your quest for testing knowledge starts here. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of the Tried and Tested podcast, where we'll be talking about trends in credentialing. I'm Isabel Gontier, your podcast host, and we're here in Denver, Colorado, with Melissa Nosek, the CEO of the Competency in Credentialing Institute. Well, welcome to our podcast, Melissa. Thank you, Isabel. Hi, everybody. It's so great. And being here again together in the same room makes this so much more fun. So, Melissa, so we always start the podcast with the same type of question because we want to hear and uh, a little bit more about your history, your background. How did you get into the testing and assessment role? Take, talk to us a little bit about that. Okay. So I am going to go back to my original industry, which was behavior analysis, uh, which... 20 years ago, people did not use the word reinforcement on a regular basis in their households. But since that profession has grown so rapidly, um, applied behavior analysis is now a, you know, insurance funded treatment for children and adults with developmental disabilities, including autism. And I was a practitioner in that world for the first part of my career. Because of that start, I was so fortunate to work with a professor that actually uh, served as a board member and one of the integral people in the development of the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. So early in my master's program working with him, uh, I had my introduction to assessment. I had never had a professor that did item analysis on our um, examinations for courses. And we would do what is, what is sort of reminiscent of the, you know, item review uh, that happens with subject matter experts when you're developing an exam. So we would go through each of the his questions and he would say, you know, for those of you that answered this answer, why? Like, what was it about this distractor that made you think it was the right answer? And so we would like analyze like our master's level courses that way. I love this. I know. Little <laughs> did I know that he, you know, the BAC, the Behavior Analyst Certification Board was new in its development. It was established in 98, I think. And I am in graduate school in 2001 in behavior analysis. So he had gone through uh, exam development with the BACB and he learned like about how to make really, really high quality assessments. And he was doing some aspects that a measurement professional might do in developing a psychometrically valid and reliable examination. So that was so fascinating to me. And little did I know that, you know, after, you know, after uh, spending my time in my master's program with him, and then I was a non-traditional student. So it was like six years later that I went back and got my PhD in applied behavior analysis. And was just so fortunate to have the opportunity to take a postdoc at the Behavior Analyst Certification Board, where I spent the next eight, almost nine years of my life learning from their psychometrician about assessment and getting to build that organization from, you know, 
I think I was one of their first 4,000 certificates, and now they have over 200,000 certificates. So we scaled that organization up over a short period of time, and it was it was the most amazing learning opportunity I could have ever asked for. So uh, that's what brought me into assessment. And wow, what a fun ride it has been. Like the assessment industry, and I say this on a regular basis, it is my new home. And I consider them my colleagues. And um, I love I love how open and welcoming that community is to just anybody, you know, that has an interest in learning more about the assessment industry. So it's been it's been really enjoyable. Yeah, no, this is great. And it is it is an amazing industry. And if I take, can take just a few minutes just to talk about how our path has crossed, because yeah. I think that's really interesting. And we'll talk a little bit more about ATP uh, later in, in this conversation. But, you know, what, what's really great, again, from an industry standpoint, Melissa and I connected through uh, the, the conference leadership for the ATP conference, which is the Association for Testing, uh, Testing Publishers. And um, she came in as the program vice chair when I was the, the conference chair for the conference. And it's amazing because we, our path hadn't crossed before, interestingly enough, because we've been in the industry for quite a while, both of us. But what I want to say is that I have to talk about shoes for a minute here, because when we met, we know that you were joining the leadership team and I was excited about it because I had heard about you and I was just like, this is going to be so great to get Melissa involved with the conference leadership. And then when we got introduced to each other, we were both wearing John Flubach shoes, which is a Canadian designer, Canadian, of course, and beautiful shoes. And I love this. Everybody in the industry knows how much I love my Flubachs. And it, it was like we were kinder spirits right from the get-go just because Indeed. of our shoes. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, and it's been a great experience. And then we'll talk a little bit more about that because I want to hear uh, about, you know, the volunteering in the industry. I think it's going to be an interesting segue because... It's, you got involved within your own profession, then got involved into the credentialing, and now are part are volunteering from a credentialing industry, testing industry standpoint. So it's a really nice connection there. I love it. Yeah, I love it. So let's talk about uh, you know what currently like in your role as CEO of CCI. Um, you know you're you're fairly new to the role, if I can say. You know it's kind of like taking the helm of a credentialing organization. Can you talk to us a little bit more about how, uh, what led you to that role and yeah. there in that world? So in behavior analysis, like there is, there's a lot of research on behavioral systems for running organizations. So my doctoral training naturally made me really passionate about creating amazing environments for employees. So when I was at the BACB and all that building was happening, I had the opportunity to hire a lot of staff and sort of bridged the gap in data collection and how it can inform human resources and organizational development. I, I got my HR credential and being involved at the governance level, like running a board of directors effectively, making sure meetings mattered, stuff like that became my passion. Like I loved every aspect of how the different departments at a credentialing organization help each other. And when employees in those 
various departments have a similar mission and are connected in a way about the va- the value and the mission of the organization. It just really was it was uh, something that I was super passionate about. The BACB had grown from 12 employees when I started to over 100 when I left. And it was really timing that brought me to CCI. Um, you know, there aren't many times like that a leadership opportunity that is your next step just presents itself in front of you. And it was a matter of timing. And that job came along at a time that um, I couldn't say no. And I would have never thought I would ever leave the BACB. Like the employees there, uh, they were, they're a team, they're a family. Uh, I'm presenting with some of them at ATP this year and can't wait to see them. So um, my BACB family is still there, but here I am at CCI. The thing that was most important, the reason I say it was a perfect opportunity and the timing was right, is I've always worked for nonprofits. And uh, the mission of an organization has always been what has driven me to really be passionate about what they do. And the healthcare industry right now, wow, we're going to see some really in substantial needs in that space in the next five years. So I saw it as an opportunity to get involved in a sector of healthcare that um, really can use high quality credentialing. And while we really have to scale up the quantity, like we have a nationwide nursing shortage right now. And uh, innovating in the space of credentialing is gonna be critical to us avoiding a massive healthcare shortage in in the coming years in in the US at least. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting and important because again, you think about the population, the certification certificate population you're serving, yeah. how you're looking at evolving that based on the credentials that you are, are holding and, and developing and administering through CCI. Yeah. I think that is like there's so many opportunities and and I guess it kind of gets me to talking about from a leadership standpoint, when you think about your role in this organization, but also yeah. as a leader in the assessment industry, credentialing industry, what's your vision? What do you see is coming up? What are the trends that are critical from your perspective as you continue to evolve uh, as part of your role? Well, I will say this. I think all of us in the credentialing industry are on the same page about when it comes to like um, writing assessments that and developing assessment that's high quality or object, objective to truly measure the skills that the practitioner needs to do. Um, I think it, it, what I see being the future is staying current with, so DEI is so important to ensure accessibility for any candidate that is eligible. So eliminating bias and making sure our lens of the world is broad enough that it captures everyone. And so, you know, at CCI, we've been really focusing on ensuring that our SME slates and pools are representative um, and they have that lens. So DEI, one thing, if I'm going to say like the future of assessment, what we need to stay on the cusp of. And I think AI, like, there's so there are so many things that it brings to a job. Something from my HR lens that I'm working on with my company now is um, educating my staff 
on how AI engines work, specifically generative AI engines, so that they're developing new content and they can be really helpful in doing your job more efficiently. And I think those companies that will be left behind will be the companies that don't embrace the ways in which it can um, help with efficiency at your company mm -hmm. and also not put the company at risk. So my position has been an educational one um, in having a policy and an AI policy and how my employees should be using it. And I, I model the ways in which I use it to make my job easier as well so that, you know, um, my employees aren't afraid of the use of AI in their daily jobs. So in terms of assessments, um, I would say the same thing. Like we are using it where we should be and also being cautious in the places that we should. And as a note, um, these cautions around AI are nothing new. It's been years. Like even when assessment moved to computer-based testing, right? Making sure that anybody that didn't own a computer yet could use a mouse. How do we teach them how to use them? Like we've been through this as an industry just in different ways. So I feel like this is just the next step in something we've already had to navigate, right? Absolutely. I think it's really, really important what you're saying here because it's embracing the change. It's not being afraid of it, being cautious, but embracing it because we don't want to, you don't want to be left behind in any way, shape or form. And and I love the analogy to the, the transition to computer based, from paper to computer-based testing. And I, I can also probably kind of expand that analogy to uh, in-test center testing and online proctoring testing it was kind of like similar approach where it was yeah. a little scary at first and it, what does that mean is that as secure and then as you evolve with the technology as you look at the opportunities that it brings um it just opens up so much more opportunity to build efficiency to uh to provide more access yeah. um and i think that that is uh and then when we get to from a diversity and equity and inclusion standpoint as well i think it kind of all goes together um, with the yeah. proper parameters in place to help and support ourselves. So I think that's yeah. great. Ooh, a, a neat note. <laughs> you know how we're talking about how much we love the assessment industry because we're also collaborative. Like there are places where there's overlap and competition, right? But the assessment community and what I love about them is that all, even though there's places where there's competition, the overall mission of the industry seems to be embraced by everybody in this space. And they can set that, that those competitive places aside for the greater good. And I think that positions an industry to be successful. Oh, absolutely, because then we're collabor collaborating together. We're bringing our, all of our brains together yeah. to really help us move the needle, establish standards, uh, leverage best practices to make our industry better. It's not about one organization or the other. No. It's making the industry better. Yeah. I love, I love it. I love it. When building from some of the what we've said, so as as we're kind of ever evolving, you know, in a credentialing landscape, um, when you think about your program, but in general as well, from a certification standpoint, sure. um, how can certification programs remain relevant and reflective of the industry best practices? Like, how do you juggle all of this? You know, this is a really good question. I feel like I have a couple of places. 
So this, the audience listening to this podcast, we all know best practices about how often do we do a job analysis. And we know that whatever we're assessing needs to be reflective of the, what's happening in the job, right? Those are, those are givens, I think. And the audience of people listening to this, they are doing those things, right? Especially if they're accredited and accreditation standards really, they synthesize all the best practices and they make sure that we're staying on point. Um, something that rec recently that's resonated with me and I've even been practicing with my board of directors and um, at the staff level is the Institute for Credentialing Excellence did a future of credentialing report. Um, and it's uh, based on the foresight methodology of strategic planning, right? Thinking about the future, preparing for the future, having your board operate at a strategic level, right? And it, going back to your question about staying relevant, one of the threats that are identified in that report to credentialing generally is that we're not being collaborative with our professional associations. So I, I, lo I love professions. Um, just a little note about me. Uh, anytime I am interacting with any professional in my life, whether it's a doctor, dentist, hair person, et cetera, I'm asking, so what were the requirements for your certification? Like, what was your experience like? What do you have to do? <laughs> right? And what I've come to learn, like, as I'm talking, like, okay, so what's your professional association that you go to, like, do you go to a conference every year? And for example, in human resources, there are a couple of organizations that offer credentials for HR professionals, right? And um, I think that one of the things that is going to be necessary to keep our credentials relevant, our industries relevant, what regardless of what profession that you operate in, is alignment with your professional associations, the foundational organizations and educational institutions that support the eligibility requirements and and all of the things that are necessary for obtaining and maintaining your credential. There are so many industries that, you know, they haven't evolved planfully. And so there've become these barbs or divisions between a professional association, the credentialing organization, there's alignment over here, but then this organization is out on its own over here and everybody's doing different things that are sort of counterintuitive and confusing to the professionals practicing in your profession. Like how many, I mean, I try to think back to like when I first became credentialed, what did I know about my professional infrastructure and what organizations I needed to become a member of? And professional associations right now are struggling to get members. You know, they're just generational changes in the way professionals operate. And so the number one thing I think any credentialing organization or in assessment as we've talked about already, we're good at aligning. We talk to each other yeah. about what what is best practice. We might not always agree, but talking the talking to each other is important. You have to have those conversations. So again, the point of this first um, this first one is just that we are aligned with our professional associations. We're having conversations with each other. I think the second thing that I would focus on, is that I don't think people recognize that credentialing is its very own profession. 
Uh, I think that's a very important point. Yes. Yes. And we, in the profession, we do talk to one another and that is so important. Uh, if you're a part of a credentialing organization and you're not engaging in this community, you're really missing out because there may be things that are new that organizations are doing for marketing purposes or other other aspects of the organization that you just aren't aware of because you're doing things the way that you've always done them. And this community, they're doing I think digital badges are a great example. My nurses love a digital badge uh, and they put them in their signature lines. I do too. It's cool. And it shows accomplishments. Exactly. I mean, and digital digital business cards, I still have some leftover business cards, but when they're gone, they're gone because the new the new world is to operate a bit more digitally. And so when I see a credential that's offered and there's not this digital way for your new credential holders to um, recognize that accomplishment, I feel like that that's a, that's a miss on, on an opportunity. And maybe because you're not engaged in these conversations with your community. So I think recognizing leadership, especially recognizing credentialing is its own profession and we need to talk to each other and, you know, trying to save money and cut corners and not having a measurement proper measurement professional involved in the development of a credential. I think it's a miss. So I think recognizing credentialing as its own profession, making sure you have those professionals integrated into your organization so that you're benefiting from that expertise, super important, and I think will keep organizations relevant. The third thing, and this is relatively new on my radar, but it is the last thing that I think that I'm going to do at my company. Um, I am, I'm, you know, there's this standard it's not an official standard, but like people have in their mind, like every five years, you know, um, reach out to your professionals and do a, do a check-in about whether your eligibility maintenance standards are still appropriate. I think with the rapid pace of developments in the workforce and technology, I think that we as credentialing folks, we really need to be reevaluating our pathways, eligibility pathways to our credentials more frequently with our work groups. And we need to be asking questions like, are there other ways that someone could get this skill set with maybe without a bachelor's degree? Or um, is there an associate's degree and additional training that might meet the same uh, standard as the bachelor's degree used to meet. That's just an example, but uh, I think that's important because there's a there's especially in healthcare a continuing demand for more people quicker, and we can't sacrifice quality. And that might be mean being innovative um, in terms of your eligibility pathways and looking for other ways for people to meet those standards in a different way. Yeah, and I love that. And 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 on that point, it's looking at things differently. It's the flexibility. It's evolving with the needs of the 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 people receiving the services from the credentialed professionals, but also yeah. evolve the evolution of the needs of your 
certification, certificate population, they learn differently. They get the training differently. So if we stay uh, focused on the traditional eligibility pathways, we're going to miss out on potentially a lot of great candidates and miss out on that population that can help better serve the public. Yeah. Yeah, Isabel. So a note, when I came to CCI, so we credential operating room nurses, I had this perception, right, that if you go into nursing or, um, or you're working in any role in a hospital, your life means longer shifts and nightly work. And I did not realize that there were specialties in the hospital where... So for my operating room nurses, for the most part, they're working during the times when the operating room is scheduled, right? And so they work normal shifts. They're not working all night if they don't want to. They might take calls sometimes, especially a cardiac OR nurse because of emergencies or something like that. But I think like touching students at a high school level that have this weird, this perception that... If you go into this industry, this is what your future looks like. Um, getting to those students at an earlier stage and saying, hey, there are places you can work in a hospital and be very helpful. And it doesn't mean like this certain type of lifestyle where you're on call all the time or working nights all the time. Yeah, and kill, that, killing some of those myths yes, in a way. Yeah. yeah. No, I like that. And the other thing I wanted to say that I could pick pick up on, because I I think it's really critical as well, is the whole concept of the credentialing professionals being a profession in and of itself. And I want to call out to the fact that, you know, you're walking the talk in a way because you are an ICECCP credential professional. So ICECCP is the certified credentialing professional designation that we have for our profession. Um, And I'm very proud to be holding the credential as well. We have lots of people in our uh, network and within PSI as well, all around that have been taking that credential because it is a profession. And I think, uh, thank you for calling that out because um, it is it is an important element of what we do as credentialing professionals, as testing professionals. And, and it's part of that whole concept of staying relevant as well. Yeah. I love it. Love it. I do too. I was so excited to get my credential and that we, my parents thought I had reached a whole new level of geekdom when I said I'm credentialed as a credentialing professional. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's good. Let's put it out there more and more and more. You know, it's, it's a great credential. Um, I guess that's kind of probably a nice segue from my perspective yeah. as we think about our industry, as we think about the credentialing industry, testing assessment industry, and how you are uh, involved in, at, in volunteering and giving back to this profession through uh, your volunteer activities. So um, you are, as we've talked at the beginning of the podcast, you're very active uh, with both ATP and ICE. So ATP, Association of Testing Professionals and and, and, uh, uh, Testing Publishers, sorry, Association of Testing Publishers, ATP, and ICE, which is the Institute of Credentialing Institute. Um, uh, and, And the thing is that with that, being involved, giving your time, contributing to this um, is really something that I personally value. And, yeah. and we align a lot on that. 
And I wanted to talk a little bit about, let's start with ATP. You are the program chair for the 2024 ATP Innovation and Testing Conference coming up in March. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? So what is it all about, like this role specifically, and what it means as well in terms of some of the key things that will be highlighted during the conference? So, uh, yes. First of all, we are really aligned in volunteerism. It's always been a, one of my core values. If any of you are the listeners are Brene Brown fans, um, she has this in her Dare to Lead book, uh, this, this challenge to her readers, listeners, to identify your core values. And collaboration is one of my core values. Uh, I live it as much as I can, and I cannot help but love the ATP and, well, to me, I guess, ATP and ICE, those two conventions are the two that I would not miss. I'm still learning so much, and I learn so much every time I attend either of those conventions and meet new people that I love and um, are just the most welcoming human beings. So... I'm super excited for this. So my role as the program chair, uh, I started, I came into ATP, the organization. I think they were looking for someone from a certification board that was sort of involved in the community um, because they keep the people that are involved, they're well-balanced. There are sometimes I look at a, you know, a submission on psychometrics that is above my level and I need a psychometrician on the committee to give some input. So I think they try to keep sort of a well-balanced representation to ensure a, a well-balanced program every year. And uh, I love that. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And Bridget Hurd um, connected with me and said, hey, would you be willing to do this? And, um, you know, they let me know it would not be an insignificant amount of work as a volunteer. And they are right. Uh, but Man, I've learned so much. You, when you do come onto ATP's um, program committee as a volunteer, it's separate from the board of directors. So the pro, the convention, the group of people that meet for the convention, man, it is a production. Like there are lots of committees. There's so much work that goes into it. I didn't know this before I started working with them, but. I sit in on these marketing calls and some of the most amazing marketing people in assessment are in there giving guidance and really talking about, you know, um, strategically how they're marketing the convention. And it's, it's really been an amazing learning experience, but it is four years. So you start as the program co-chair program. So you have a year where you're sort of observing and seeing how everybody interacts and what's going on. And then, um, you move into the program chair role, then convention co-chair and convention chair. And I love that ATP is, um, they're starting to get more people um, involved and having opportunities as volunteers because I think that from a human resources perspective, the values of our new um, generations of workers is that they are helping. They, they, they love to um, work for organizations that have a mission and values that they align with. And so having opportunities for volunteers to get involved and see really what the values and the mission of ATP is, I think is going to be really important for them moving forward. And they're starting to do that this year uh, with their volunteer coordination and, and stuff like that. So 
that's how I got involved uh, with ATP. And it, I, ha I haven't looked back for a minute because it's been the most fun. I'm and, glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. And we met through this. So there you go. See, huge value right there. Yes. <laughs> and you just joined also the ICE program committee as yeah. well. So you're going to be an expert at conference programs. I'm telling you, doing these two things at the same time has been amazing because I think um, for me, I was later in my career when I started getting involved in this community. And I knew that there were some things that, I, like every time I would attend a convention, I'm hearing something new that I didn't know yet. And I knew I needed to, I needed to commit to almost like, uh, for those of you who've been in graduate school working on a dissertation and it, you live, breathe, and sleep it, I knew I needed to commit to live, breathing, and sleeping the assessment industry for a few years if I was going to catch up to my peers and know when I'm making a tragic mistake with my program or when when I'm going in the right direction. And with AI and the like to keep up with AI, you have to be watching what's going on every day right now. Yep. And so doing these two things in tandem, I make sure you have room on your plate. Um, there will not be a new pet in my household until um, all of those volunteer activities are done because it is time consuming. But Wow, what an opportunity, and I'm so thankful and grateful for it. Oh, it's definitely a win-win, and, and thank you so much for the time you're, you're spending yeah. with that because I think it's it's really important, so uh, thank you, thank you. As we kind of uh, wrap up, thinking about the trend, yeah. we've been talking about so many different things, and I, I love this conversation, uh, talking about trends. Uh, with the upcoming ATP, that is in yes. a month from now, yeah. now pretty much, um, and so what are you most looking forward to? Like, what are the key topics, trendy topics and, and presentations that you're most excited about as we prepare for ATP? Okay. So first of all, I love that our industry conventions have tracks that identify topics that are DEI specific, whether it be in the test development process or um, item writing, item development, test delivery uh, that address ex the accessibility issues that um, we know we all know are really important. So I think that what I'm, what I'm, well, let's be honest, what I'm most looking forward to is seeing all my friends. But in terms of the conference program, I love that it there's the DEI aspect. We have a new to the industry track this year. So we went through the program and identified what are the sessions that are going to be most important to new to the industry people? Because I don't know about you, but like when I was brand new, I would wander into a session that was really high level psychometrics. And I was like, oh, uh, am I allowed to sneak out? Is that going to be rude? So we've given people that are new and are trying to select sessions a way to sort of identify this is going to be something good for me. And um, we're sort of innovating that new to industry event at the beginning too, because what I found was that like, and this is common amongst others, is that until you make a couple of connections or familiar faces at the convention, it's really... Um, it's really easy not to network, like if given the opportunity to not go up and say hi to a new person, like you might not. And so we're setting up opportunities so that that might not be so awkward and it, it could be, it'll be fun and 
you'll walk away having met somebody that you could email if you're at your organization struggling with somebody and you have somebody else from another organization that does similar things that you can reach out to and have a connection with. So I'm really excited about the new to industry. I love that we are still having these DEI tracks throughout the convention so that you you can access that content. Um, I love that we have two amazing keynotes, um, an opening keynote that uh, is really going to set the tone and inspire people at the convention. And our closing keynote is going to be there through the convention. She's closing on uh, AI uh, content. So I think we have a ton of content on AI, of course. Like yeah. most submissions, um, that came in for the convention this year were on AI. So in the t whether it be in the test development process, delivery, uh, all aspects of assessment. And so she will be attending those sessions and able to incorporate them and put them in a bow. So if you're at the convention and you miss some of the sessions, you'll at least get, get that closing keynote where she's talking about what the conversation is about this year and maybe what the take-home points are. I always love a good summary. So that'll be another nice part. Oh, there's also going to be champagne at one of the, what, one of the opening things, which I'm excited about. Well, there you go, champagne. You, at a dessert bar. <laughs> yeah. I think it's great. And you know what? It's probably a good reinforcement that if people are attending ATP, obviously there's lots of, of great values that they're yeah. working Connecting with with your colleagues, meeting new people. I love what you've said about the um, new to the industry track. I think it's yeah. so important because we're thriving as an industry, and we want to continue to bring in people and kind of being able to inject that passion yeah. uh, to a lot more people. So I, I love that the conference is is doing that, and then make sure that if you're ETP, stick until the end. You want to see that closing because I love the fact that yeah. it's going to be sort of wrapping up with, with that sort of like high level summary, building from the conference, building from the energy, the themes of the conference. So it's, it's amazing to see that, Melissa, and great yeah. job, great job as a program chair. I'm, I'm excited about it. I think that you are doing fabulous work. Thank you. Fabulous, fabulous. And then as we wrap up, this has been amazing. Um, I want to thank you for your time, for your generous, uh, you know, the way you're, you're, you provided information, uh, very inspiring. Um, and lots of energy there that we want to, I want to be able to bubble this up instead of being able to share with everyone. So much for having me. I love it. From shoes to, to business, we got it all covered, I think. Absolutely. Well, thank you, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and then looking forward to the next time we connect. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.